Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to change makers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We look at learning in traditional settings, schools and universities, but also outside of them, after school, at home, and of course, at work. In our second series, we're looking at how schools are coping with COVID-19, including what lessons we will apply to the hopeful aim of building back better. Topics we obsess on include nimble innovations, closing equity gaps, and ways to prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Yuli Tamir, president of Beit Barrel College, one of Israel's largest teaching colleges. Yuli has a deep well of experience. She was also head of Shankar College of Engineering, Design and Art, and is an adjunct professor at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University. Her work extends into politics as well. She was deputy speaker of the Knesset and minister of both immigration and education, representing the Labour Party in the first decade of the millennium. Yuli and I talk about a lot in this podcast, including why Israel became the cautionary tale and how not to open schools, as well as the incredible success of its vaccination program. I hope you listen to the whole thing because we get into some weighty and important subjects like how to train teachers for a world characterized by both light speed change and utter uncertainty. She also predicts that the inequality created by the coronavirus may well be worse than the effects of the virus itself. We want teachers to be more autonomous, not to wait for instructions. The network is going to give them confidence, but at the end, at the center of each process of teaching stands a person, and that person should be more powerful, more independent, more autonomous. So it's a network of autonomous agents rather than people who are relying on each other. They're working together to make themselves better, but they're not sort of dependent in the bad sense of the term on each other. So a good education system is where teachers see themselves as independent agents with abilities and power and skills. As Minister of Education, Yuli introduced a few important reforms, an increase in teacher salaries, a requirement that teachers spend more time in schools, and also a reform to allow teachers to deliver five hours of small group instruction a week. She offers ideas in the podcast about what the government should do now to support teaching and learning in a post-COVID world, and also how Bait Barrel is reforming its entire teacher training curriculum. We also talk about what we learned about ourselves and each other in this pandemic. Yuli is thoughtful, honest, refreshingly direct, and deeply experienced, so I really recommend you listen. Oh, and a note of caution. If you're wondering what the odd noise in the background is, it's Yuli's very squeaky office chair. We plan to send her some WD-40 as a gift for coming on. Yuli, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Hi. I'd love to start by talking about Israel and COVID. How is Israel done with COVID, and what have been the challenges, especially as they relate to schools and teaching? We started by feeling Israel is a great success, and there were less casualties here, and things seemed to be under control. Then, like many other countries, Israel lost control and the pandemic was spreading very quickly. It is actually right now spreading very quickly. A lot of people claim it is the British mutation that is, you know, responsible for this wave. But on the same time, Israel is getting vaccinated in a pace no other country is vaccinating itself. So I would say like among 60 years old, over 80% are vaccinated now. The sensible 
thing to do was to start from the older people and go to younger people. But now, as the older people have been vaccinated, we find that the, also a lot of young people are getting this type of sort of mutation and are actually very ill. So, you know, it's a mixed picture. When you and I spoke a while ago, you mentioned that uh, Israel became a bit of a cautionary tale with how to open schools. Why was opening schools such a disaster? What happened? Schools here are very crowded. Classes here are very large. And families are large. So one child that gets infected in school comes home, infects a whole family. Family gatherings are very common. So it runs within the family and into the neighborhood and a whole community can be infected. And you had some observations about Israeli culture and also demographics. So a third of Israel are young children. Yep. When people tell you that people over 60 have been vaccinated, uh, one thing to remember that this is relatively to European countries, a small portion of the population because 33%, I think, are under 18. What was it about... Israeli culture that you mentioned to me that also made some of the measures to combat COVID difficult. People touch each other, hug each other, hang together, eat together. Families gatherings are very, very common here. I'm sure everywhere uh, separating grandchildren from their grandparents was a difficult thing to do. It was immensely difficult in Israel. And uh, a lot of people didn't respect the regulation and Slowly, slowly, uh, more people were sort of tempted to see their grandchildren, their children, their friends. Uh, So I wouldn't say that the people preserved the rule very cautiously. Some sub-communities in Israel, especially the ultra-Orthodox and the Arab communities, where the violation of of, uh, social distancing was very, very common. So in these communities, the virus spread quicker than in other communities. Will teachers get vaccinated? I think starting two weeks ago, teachers were offered vaccinations. So teachers are now in the process of getting their second round of vaccination. And what is the status of schools right now? Schools are closed. Some communities like Tel Aviv, the ratio of infection is very low, four or five percent. Therefore, you know, you can open schools and be very cautious about it. Some communities, like the ultra-Orthodox communities, the ratio is 40% of the people are infected. So the rational thing to do was to close ultra-Orthodox schools in communities that we call red communities and open schools where communities are green or yellow. However, because of political reasons and the power of the Haredi community in the political arena, there is no governmental insistence on closing only the ultra-Orthodox schools. And therefore, either everything is open or everything is closed, so everything is closed, which is a real pity because lots of children could have gone to school. And now that teachers are vaccinated, so that population is protected, will that change the conversation at all? Well, the vaccination of the teachers is just part of it because if one child is infected, it can, you know, infect other children. It seems like the most common way the virus is transmitted here, at least, is in family settings. Let's talk about Beit Beryl. 
you went from 5% of your faculty teaching online to 100%, a phenomenon that will be familiar to many, but you had to then in turn train teachers to do the same. So you kind of had to learn and then teach right away. Talk us through what that experience was like and what you learned. I think the first few months were sort of a little bit of a shock because uh, nobody was prepared to teach everything online. We had to, like everywhere else, to do a very rapid transformation. I, I think if you would ask people a year ago, would everybody teach online? They would say, no, no, maybe a few percent, that's rational, but 100% online, that's too much. Then there was a little bit of euphoria. Everybody says, well, it's working online. We can do it. It's really, you know, it's amazing. And now I think we meet the harsh reality that, well, it's not that great. And lots of students are having great difficulties. It's harder to study online than face-to-face. It's almost impossible to sit online six or seven hours in classes where people just lecture. Because the first, I think, move everywhere was to take the classes as they were and then just record them. That's not really innovative or digital learning or distance learning. It is just a transition period. So now we realize classes should be shorter and there should be interactions of students among themselves. They can work together, maybe contribute to the class in many ways. It should be much more interactive. And while doing that, we have to cope with the basic sort of infrastructure that is not very advanced. Unfortunately, though Israel is seen as a very advanced country, technologically, our infrastructure is not very great. And the result is that, you know, you start a class on Zoom and the whole region then shuts down because of some sort of technical problem. Sometimes it's very frustrating and people understand now that this is not the answer to all our dreams, right? Learning from afar is an option, an interesting option. It should be part of our teaching, but it's not a replacement for schools. Do you think it works? Well, like everything in education, it works for some people sometimes. First of all, some people who are more able to study on their own, who are less needy in a sense that they don't need all the time support and interaction. They can just listen to a lecture and learn from it. It works for them. But it's also a class matter because if you have a setting where you can sit and study, that's one thing. If you are forced to be in one room with the other siblings who are all competing for the computer and there is very weak connections online, the likelihood that you will be able to study permanently online is not very high. And it also depends where the teachers are. Lots of teachers are lower middle class. They have one computer at home. They all work from home with their children at home that need to study online. This is an impossible situation. So One cannot advocate a way of teaching that actually places lower class communities to be doomed to failure. What are some of the innovations that you all have found that you think you will carry forward? First of all, you can bring in guest lectures, you can bring in videos from other lecturers, you can present research online in interesting way, in digital ways that are sort of more attractive and easier to understand. Um, you can allow your student to interact with students from other countries, from other classes. Uh, there are lots of things that you can do. But the main problem is that while you're doing that, the fact that you sit in front of the computer, as we do right now, for a whole day, it's not only the, the social economic conditions, it's a sort of a mental 
thing. It's very difficult, especially for young children, especially for adolescents. In between, maybe there are ages where it's a little bit easier. For many children, it's a nightmare. The most important thing we have learned is that learning is an emotional state of mind. It's not only a cognitive state of mind. To be open to learning, you have to be placed in a situation where you are attentive, you're concentrating, you're active, you're engaged. And creating this state of mind is not a simple thing. By the way, also not in a regular classroom. There are many children who sit in a regular classroom, seem to be there, but are absent. The task is to really learn how to, first of all, understand where every child is placed on this you know, emotional scale, from being engaged to being detached. Try and make children more engaged. And then uh, in order for them to be more engaged, sometimes you have to deal with problems that they have at home, with problems that they have outside the schools, fears, anxiety, hunger, instability within the family, violence sometimes. So it's a whole set of issues that we can't just, you know, when you, you look at the children as a sort of black squares on a screen, it's very hard to know where they are emotionally. So the social and emotional teaching and learning becomes very challenging and important. So you're in a very unique role to leverage change in that space. Do we know enough about how to teach these skills to do that? We know very little about it. There is a wave of trying to understand how do you train teachers to understand the emotional and psychological state of mind of their students. And that could be done only in small groups, sort of direct interaction. And sometimes you can do it. You can do it also online. If you talk in an intimate setting where teachers and students are engaging with each other. They can't, you know, close their cameras. They have to look you in the eye. But it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of investment. But the research isn't necessarily as robust as we would want it. There's not a sort of toolkit that we could look to. First of all, I should say that in education in general, there is no toolkits. It's very hard to have one size fits all. You have to do a lot of work to understand where you're standing, where your class comes from, what's their background, uh, what are they experiencing outside the school system. In Israel, we have quite a lot of experience with it because we have a lot of children that are in areas of crisis. You know, in the South, missiles were falling, children were under stress, and we created support system for them. But even with all that knowledge and experience, I don't think we have a good enough set of understandings that will allow us to advocate a certain way of teaching. I think the most important thing, and it's a struggle in most countries, is give the teachers time to face intimacy with their children. I think one of the most important part of the school reform I've done during my period as Minister of Education was to introduce five hours for every teacher of small group teaching. And the essence of a small group teaching is that you can really look your students in the eye. You can be intimate with them. You can listen to them. They can be more free to share with you their problems, their difficulties, their experiences. So it's something that we've started doing about 10 years ago when the reform came in. 
now we're trying to understand how you do it online. It's not a luxury. It's a very, very essential part of creating the conditions for teaching and learning. I wanted to push back on this idea of sort of teachers need to know their students and know the challenges they face. That's always been the case, right? That's not a new finding. I guess I'm curious what COVID made us realize that we didn't know before. How has that changed our thinking around that issue? What we learned is there is a group of uh, students that would not be challenged in school, but are challenged by the distant learning. So we enlarged the group of children that are facing mental, psychological problems. So I think that the more we are witnessing the price of social distancing, the more we learn how important it is to live healthy social life. And the teachers also are under stress. You know, their husbands may be out of jobs. They're Everybody's afraid of the pandemic. Social economic conditions are getting worse. There's no way to go out and just, you know, refresh. And the teachers find teaching online very difficult, you know, especially because children are closing their screen. Sometimes you don't know what the children are doing while they are sitting there across the screen. It's harder to understand what a child is doing. You know, you could be looking at the screen and then doing something else, playing a game, not being there at all which again could happen in a classroom, but now it's more frequent. And the children find the whole situation very intimidating. I can tell you that my middle granddaughter for a while was absolutely frightened to touch me because she used to say, oh, grandma, I can kill you. Because they kept saying on TV that, you know, don't don't hug your grandparents, they could be infected and die. And she would say, no, 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 I can't. I can't hug your grandma because... I'm afraid I'll kill you. What will I do if I'll kill you? So it was like heartbreaking. Now, you know, I'm vaccinated. We're all vaccinated. So it's different. But the beginning was very traumatic for them. They suddenly realized they have the power to do harm, which is terrible for children. When we get through surviving to reflecting and changing, what are some of the things that you do want to change about training teachers? I think the most important thing is to train teachers to a very uncertain period because that might not be the last pandemic. And I think things are going to change rapidly as they have been changing in the last year or so. And teachers have to be much more flexible, much more able to deal with a variety of situations. We used to think, okay, you know, the normal life demands these skills and that's what teachers need. But normality, or as people call it now, the new normal is going to be very, very eclectic. Teachers need to be more resilient, more independent, more able to adjust. I think we all need to, by the way, it would be a good advice for all of us. But training teachers, we are changing our curricula from teaching teachers how to teach, to teach teachers how to just have the resilience to stand and become, you know, uh, more able to function in times of crisis. It could be a social economic crisis, it could be a pandemic, it could be something else. So I think empowering teachers, their inner abilities is the most important thing right now. How do you do that? How do you teach adaptability? We are all struggling with this question, which is the most important one. I think one of the most sort of Israeli lessons is that young people who went through 
a constructive experience in youth movements, in pre-military experiences, sometimes in the army, come up with more personal resilience and are able to cope with just challenges of life in better ways. So we're thinking a lot of how to make this kind of challenge, this kind of attitude more common among teachers. We also did it before the pandemic. We teach a lot on communal basis. We look at the student community, but the word community is much more significant than the way it is usually sort of mentioned in our discourse. It's really a community. It's about being accountable to other students. It's working together with them. It's uh, hopefully helping them, networking with other teachers who have similar problems. It's really about building the kind of support system that you'll need when you are a professional. I think that in an age of uncertainty, these are very important conditions for success, that you have people to rely on, that you have people to speak with, that you have people to consult with, that you have people to cry on their shoulders when you're doing something wrong. I mean, you need this because otherwise you can't succeed. So we are looking at our student as growing to be part of a very effective community that works together. Any other things that you sort of know you want to do, even if you don't quite know yet how to do it? We want teachers to be more autonomous, not to wait for instructions. The network is going to give them confidence, but at the end, at the center of each process of teaching stands a person, and that person should be more powerful, more independent, more autonomous. So it's a network of autonomous agents rather than people who are relying on each other. They're working together to make themselves better, but they're not sort of dependent in the bad sense of the term on each other. So a good education system is where teachers see themselves as independent agents with abilities and power and skills, but they also know that like every other independent agent, they can't do it on their own. They have to collaborate in order to be successful. Everybody talks about the importance of building lifelong learning skills. Do you think we'll think differently about those skills post-COVID? In the post-COVID area, learning is going to be a process. It's not going to end at any particular point. It's not like you've got a degree, I finished my studies. Because while you're studying, the world is changing. And this is something I'm very concerned about when I teach my students who are going to be teachers. And I think, okay... This uh, teacher is going to enter my college now. She's going to study for four or five years. She's going to enter her position in four years and then teach for another 40 years. Who knows what the world would look like? You know, I think it's a huge challenge now to teach people to teach. And it's quite clear that whatever that person have learned in college will be changed time and again during their professional life. So that's a very important thing to do. Keep on studying. I'd love to talk about politics. You were an education minister. You made three significant changes. You got significant salary increases for teachers. You made it a requirement that teachers spend more time in school. And you added this five hours, which you referenced a week of small group instruction. What would you like to see the state do right now, seeing some of the consequences of this pandemic? I would like the state, first of all, to raise salaries again, because teacher salaries are still low. I've doubled almost the salaries of teachers, but that was after many, many years that nobody has confronted the issue. I think now it's time to do it again. 
I would give teacher more time for, especially after the pandemic, to work with small group of children. Divide classes, allow small group teaching. Our classes are very large and crowded. And I would allow more autonomy for teachers. The ministry became basically a burden because of so many requirements. I think there was a development in the last uh, 10 years or so that because of account, sort of accountability and wanting everything to be you know, reported and everything to be supervised and everything to be evaluated, teachers are now clerks. They fill forms and answer questions all day long. And we should just give our teachers more trust I think when you look at the Finnish system that everybody is envious of, uh, one thing that is very important is the trust the, the system has in its own teachers. I think we all agree that COVID's going to exacerbate inequality significantly. I think accountability in some places, and maybe not Israel, so tell me, was an attempt to try to document more to make sure the bottom was coming up. And so I guess my question is, what's the impact of COVID on inequality? And then if we're not going to do the accountability system, is the trust system enough to deal with what will be that fallout? First of all, I am really not sure that we hit the right balance on accountability. Actually, in a book I published in Israel, I call it a sort of malignant accountability. It became so dominating that rather than evaluate things, it sort of changed the way we do things. And that's not a good thing. We fear accountability. It's a high risk profession and nobody wants to risk their career. So people just compromise and rather than do the right thing, do the accountable thing, which is not the same thing. Unfortunately, inequalities will grow quite uh, dramatically. All the difficulties we were discussing earlier are much more severe in places where children uh, don't have a computer or there's one computer for the whole family or there is no electricity or there's no infrastructure or there is no room to study, there's no white space to learn in. So at the end of the day, uh, the weak are getting weaker and the strong are getting stronger. I think the effect of inequality created by the corona could be worse than the effects of the corona itself. Mm -hmm. People are facing homelessness, people are facing economic difficulties, children are facing malnutrition, uh, unstable homes, uh, unemployment. This is going to be a devastating time for many, many people, especially young people and especially young people with children. What have we learned about ourselves and about each other that maybe we didn't know before COVID or we needed? To be reminded of. I'll tell you a nice story. There was a, once a program in Britain called The Lonely Island and some, you know, very significant person were asked to tell what they would take uh, to a lonely island. And, and then they were asked all sorts of other questions like, if you would have been an animal, what would you like to be? And my great teacher, Isaiah Berlin, gave a very surprising answer. He said, I would like to be a penguin. And people say, penguin, you know, nobody says penguin. And he said, yes, I would like to be a penguin because penguins die when they are alone. And I think that's what we learned. Loneliness can kill you even more than a virus. On that very sad note, I have three slightly lighter questions to ask you. What is your favorite book about learning? It's hard to tell. There's so many good books, but maybe So Many Reform, So Little Change by Charles Payne. And what about your favorite book, not about learning? 
Probably Promise at Dawn by Roman Gary. It's a sort of a childhood book that I used to read with my mom. Wonderful. And what are you binge watching on television these days? The Crown. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we all are. Yuli, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. It's my pleasure. Okay, let's start with the story of the penguin. How gutting was that? Some of Yuli's observations are so chilling. Loneliness can kill you even more than the virus. The effects of inequality created by the coronavirus may well be worse than the effects of the coronavirus itself. The COVID exposed again how important emotional and mental well-being is to learning. But the thing I found myself thinking about long after this conversation was the need to teach adaptability and resilience and the lack of knowledge we have about how to do this. We know way more than we did a decade ago, but Yuli was pretty categorical that we don't actually know very much. And yet it is perhaps the most important question she faces as head of a teaching college and that we all face as parents, educators, and humans. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.